FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's great to have all of you with us for today's Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut with a lot, as usual, to talk about in political news today. Um, great panel to talk about our issues with as well. Kevin Riley is with us. It's Tuesday. That's Kevin's day to come in. He, of course, is the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, has a team of lots of different kinds of reporters, but a big team uh, covering politics at the state capitol in Washington, you have a political empire on your hands. Well, you know, and I went down to the legislature yesterday to yeah. visit with that empire, and everybody was working hard. So I was, uh, as always, proud of their work, and they they really go at it. I'm glad you're here. Um, across from you at the table, if you're watching us on Facebook Live, you can do that by going to the GPB news page on Facebook. So across from you, if you're watching, is... Uh, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver of Decatur. Mary Margaret, I said when you walked in, I love when you're able to get over here during the sessions because you're quite often, all of you have things to do, committee meetings and other kinds of meetings in the afternoon. It's really great to have you back at the microphone. Thank you. Very kind of you. Enjoy being here. Ed Lindsay is with us. He's a former Republican member of the state uh, legislature, now a partner at Denton's, the world's largest law firm. Thank you for having me. How's that feel, the world's largest law firm? There are more lawyers in this firm than there were people in the town that I started practicing <laughs> law in. So how, I'm still getting used to it many, three years later. How many partners does Denton's have worldwide? Do you happen to know that number? Well, I, well, I, I just came back from a partner's <laughs> meeting. It's around uh, around 1,000, I yeah. believe. <laughs> okay. That's a lot of people to split up the annual profits with. <laughs> uh, joining us from our Macon Bureau, Chris Grant. He's the chairman of the political science department at Mercer University. Chris, we... Love having you down there in middle Georgia representing that part of the state with us. How are you? Happy to be here. Thank you. Um, all right, let's get right to work. Uh, Kevin Riley, about two hours before we went on the air, we got some pretty interesting breaking news. Your reporter, Tamar Hallerman, in Washington uh, put a piece up on Political Insider at AJC.com. The Pentagon has been getting pressed, particularly by Democrats in Congress, to come up with a list of projects, military projects, that they've identified that could be forfeited to, make, uh, uh, to come up with the money that President Trump wants to build his wall. They finally today released that list nationwide. They put up some $12.9 billion worth of military projects. Um, they don't need that much money for the wall, but those are all in the mix as potentially vulnerable projects. And that includes 260-some million dollars of military projects in Georgia. Right. So in Georgia, we're talking about a whole bunch of things, including $99 million for a cyber instructional facility at Fort Gordon, $31 million for a hangar at Moody Air Force Base, and $75 million for a Marine Corps logistics base in Albany. So yeah. it's a, I mean, it's a lot of money. As you said, the Democrats are circulating this list. So we're not sure if, you know, if, if these things really are at risk. But I think it'll be a hot issue nationwide because one of the things that goes on with military bases, of course, is they're always trying to improve their facilities, always trying to remain competitive with the mission that they have because every base in every congressional district is worried that there'll be another reduction, a BRAC, and they will, because their facilities are not good enough, they will lose that base or lose a mission at that base and lose jobs. Chris, I want to come to you first on this, because uh, the military is it looms even larger down in your part of the state than it does here in uh, metro Atlanta. When you hear this list, and it may be for the first time, uh, how do you think people down your way are going to react? 
Well, I was very happy to hear that Robbins wasn't on the list, yeah. but I think the folks in Albany are very concerned. That's a major um, import to the city and what it has to offer. We're very dependent in middle Georgia on the Robbins Air Force Base and the, all the activities that go along with it. I know many people that are directly impacted, they either work on the base or they work for contractors on the base. And I think if Robbins were for some reason to close down, you would see uh, middle Georgia really drying up. $106 million for South Georgia is a tremendous amount of money yes, for Moody and Albany. $106 million out of the 260 is areas of the state that are tremendously in need. Well, in addition to the, the, the money, there is also the operations, and obviously the operation over in Augusta on cybersecurity. Uh, is something of, of critical national importance. That was something that Nathan Deal, Governor Deal, touted and was proud of. They pushed hard to get the facility placed in Augusta, and it was a very big deal for the state when that happened. It is a big deal for the state, and quite frankly, it's, it's a big deal for national security overall. And the state's contributed $40 million bill. I mean, the, the state has been a partner in that in a very significant way. Yeah, you number, really wonder what the president will do, right? I mean, will he target these projects in states where he lacks support as opposed to a state like Georgia. I mean, in other words, is there, uh, can he get most of that money from projects that would be delayed in a state like California? So so what do you think, Ed, let me come to you uh, uh, first on this and then everybody can weigh in, but um, we both, both uh, uh, Johnny Isaacson and David Perdue voted with the president uh, when the Senate took up a question of whether to support or reject the president's national emergency declaration, which gave him the authorization to spend this, or he believes gives him the authorization that there is some question as to whether that was extra legal or not. Nevertheless, both our senators voted with him on this. Um, does this give either of them, Isaacson especially, any reason to have second thoughts? Well, I don't know about second thoughts, but it certainly gives them something to fight over. And certain to fight for, and uh, and Johnny Isaacson uh, and David Perdue are both very experienced at fighting uh, for this state, and I expect them to work very hard to make sure that the funding is secured for this state. If you got, if you just look at the math, if Georgia got 130 million dollars for the port, perhaps as some part of the discussion about the Savannah a, a, a port, of Savannah right. port, but they're potentially going to lose 260 million dollars, and the math does not work for Georgia. And I think that's an ongoing conversation. Um, you know, it's interesting because on this show um, a week ago, Jim Galloway um, came, speculated that one of the reasons that we, we expected Purdue would vote with Trump on the national emergency declaration because he has been so devoted and loyal to the president uh, throughout both of their tenures. Uh, we wondered about Isaacson and Galloway speculated that Isaacson felt after having won that money for the port, it would be difficult for him to vote against the uh, president. So that in itself is kind of interesting. Chris, we don't know for a fact that any or certainly not all of this money will go to the wall. We just know this is on a list of projects that could be used for this. So we're, we are speculating about this today, Chris. Sure, and the courts are going to weigh in yet on what's going to happen with the diversion of the money toward the wall. Um, but it is interesting, and I think the points about uh, Savannah, uh, Moody, um, all of the bases, and we depend on it. The military is a large industry for communities like Macon and Warner Robins. I mean, you don't go downtown Macon without seeing airmen because we house a lot of airmen in Macon. We haven't heard yet, Kevin, from any of George's uh, members of Congress to get their response to this, but Jack Reed of Rhode Island, a Democrat, of course, on the Armed Services Committee, uh, said uh, this. This is a direct quote. He said, Trump is planning to take funds from real effective operational priorities and needed projects and divert them to his, and he calls it a vanity wall. That may help shore up his political base, but it could come at the expense of our military bases and the men and women of our armed forces who rely on them. Right. I mean, you would expect that out of a Democrat. Uh, right. Uh, Tamara's story notes that none of, no one from Georgia has reacted yet, but I'm sure she's pursuing that, and people can expect to find out what, what they have to say All in right. the paper in the morning. Well, we just wanted to get to that story since it uh, developed in the last couple of hours. There's another story that's developing today. And Mary Margaret, I'm going to turn to you on this one. 
Um, Kevin Riley's newspaper, the AJC, a few weeks ago uh, did a very f- powerful investigative piece raising questions about whether Speaker David Ralston has been using his position as Speaker of the House, as a member of the state legislature, to uh, get continuances for cases. He is a lawyer, of course, where he represents, in some cases, uh, people accused of pretty heinous crimes. And has he used his position and and the powers that uh, are granted now to those of you in the legislature to ask for continuances to the benefit of clients whose cases may never come up for adjudication? The Speaker actually appointed, after first really fighting back on these accusations, he finally came to the well, made a very— uh, powerful speech, I think it's safe to say, and said he was going to appoint a committee to look at whether the rules on this ought to be changed. And apparently there's some development coming on that. I hear that there might be developments very soon, perhaps this afternoon. Um, uh, the, the commission was co-chaired, is co-chaired at Speaker Ralston's appointment by Ed Lindsay and Ron Mabry, and there's some very good appointments on it. My friend Tom Cawthorn is on it, and they're they have uh, worked, obviously, very, very quickly and very significantly, and I believe there's going to be um, a production of a set of recommendations that may come as soon as this afternoon, is what my rumor mill tells me. I, I did my best <laughs> before the show went on the air to push Ed Lindsay, who is sitting across from me as the co-chair of this group, advisory group, to give us some hint about what may happen. Can you at least confirm, Mr. Lindsay, that sometime today there may be a report from your group? I can neither confirm nor deny, <laughs> but just simply stay tuned. And on a more serious note, I believe that this is an issue that we can uh, clear up. Uh, you know, the public policy involved is a good one, uh, but they, there is a need to tweak uh, the law. And, uh, and my group has been working very hard toward that. Let me ask Go. this. If, the, if a report were going to be released uh, at some point, I would assume the media will be al- would be alerted to when that report may be forthcoming. How, how much ahead of the actual release of the report could the media expect to be informed about this, Mr. Lindsay? All committees in the Georgia <laughs> General Assembly are public and, uh, and are uh, – can be viewed online, and I suggest folks do so. So if, if say, an editor were wandering about the legislature uh, today, would you have a suggestion about where to wander and what time? You know, I always like to see my friends wander the it's legislature. Be, I think, Not all who wander think, are lost, is what you're saying. I here. think the committee in question might be meeting at 5 o'clock today. All right, enough said. Look, we are going to see some report on this. I understand that Ed Lindsay's got to be circumspect, but Barry Margaret... Today we're going to get some uh, revelations about what the changes might be that are going to be proposed. There, among us uh, lawyer legislators, there's been a good amount of discussion about this and a lot of pain about this. This is a we we do try to make a living. About 60 percent of the members of the General Assembly have another real job. I was in court last week on a case where. A civil case where my client needs relief, has to get relief, it's not in my client's interest to wait. Criminal cases, it's frequently in the client's interest, if they're out on bond, to never have a trial. Uh, I find when I'm working with my own legislative leave decisions and going to court during the session, it very much is attended to, first, my client's needs, and secondly, how aggressive is the judge being? I had a judge last August, just this August, deny legislative leave, which she was totally unauthorized to do, but she did it anyway. And uh, so it's a painful subject, and I'm glad that this commission is working hard, and I believe the recommendations will be significant. All right. Well, we'll watch for those, and I suspect they will. we will see them uh, on our newscast uh, today on uh, All Things Considered at some point, and I'm sure we'll read them on the Political Insider blog. And in the paper tomorrow. And in the paper tomorrow morning. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's 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 talk. You know, there are a number of hot-button legislative issues. Certainly, uh, the abortion bill that's making its way through is one we're going to take up in a few minutes. But we've talked about that, to, uh, you know, pretty extensively in the last few days. So I thought before going to that, uh, we ought to take up an issue that we have not given much attention to recently. And that's uh, Senator Jeff Mullis's bill to protect Confederate monuments and other Confederate memorials, tributes, whatever. 
uh, around the state of Georgia. Mary Margaret, this comes at a time when there are people who would like to return to local control the right to remove these monuments, for instance, out in your city, Decatur, to be able to take down a very specifically lost cause memorial in the Decatur Square, and you can't do it because the state, the legislature passed a statute saying the state has to approve that uh, before any local action can be taken. And now Mullis has added language that goes beyond that. The uh, Decatur Obelisk is about 35 to 40 yards from my law office that I've had for the last 30 years. And I'm on the subcommittee of government affairs and the full committee and offered amendments, unsuccessfully offered amendments to allow Decatur and DeKalb County to make a decision about its own property. It's totally antithetical to Republican talk, to Democrat talk, to political talk, that local control is not our standard. And I wasn't in the General Assembly when Roy Barnes took down the flag and made this deal that the state could not, uh, the state was only in charge of the obelisk. That was his trade-off. It was, I hear it was his trade-off. I wasn't here then. Uh, but Decatur and DeCab have really been painfully at work. And this week, in fact, uh, they've announced that they're going to put with the, the Confederate memorial on the Decatur Square um, another uh, representation, another uh, historical monument that will talk about the context of that 1908, 1920 Jim Crow era obelisk uh, creation. So Decatur and DeCab are moving forward in a very limited way because the state has prohibited them to do what they'd like to do to put that monument in context. Senator uh, Mullis opposed my amendment to return local control in subcommittee and full committee. In fact, Reinders wouldn't even let me bring it in full committee. And uh, the bill moves forward, creating new penalties for uh, desecration of monuments. And the definition of monuments has been broadened, obviously. They, they will, Senator Mullis will say, oh, this is not about the Confederate monuments. It's also about the Vietnamese and the, con the Korean War and the World War II. But it really is about so, Confederate monuments. So, you know, monuments. Chris, let me—you know what? I mean, this is not necessarily the kind of simple binary choice that we would like to make it, it strikes me. And what I mean by that is, and I turn to you as a political scientist to take the first crack at this, um, Mary Margaret says that out in Decatur, they're now looking at adding an element to the Lost Cause Monument, which puts that monument in context, gives it historical context. Michael Thurmond, an African-American political leader in this state, has argued for a long time that we that's what we really need to do. We don't need to tear down every Confederate monument. We don't need to, you know, sandblast the face of Stone Mountain. We need to find ways to put Georgia history in context. So, Chris, it, it sounds like a very simple choice, but there's more to it. Well, well, there is. I mean, I think that these are emotional um, connections that people have. I grew up in Alabama. I can remember being carted down to Montgomery to see the star that Jefferson Davis was sworn in for the Confederacy. And I, I remember the debates about the flag, particularly um, when I was living in South Carolina. And, and one of the things that I would talk with about students is when you walk up into any building and you, you're kind of looking to see what it's all about, and that time I talked about the South Carolina State Capitol, where they have pictures of all the governors in the state, and this was before Nikki Haley, and you'd see all these white guys. And I said, that's great. That gives you something to aspire to, to my white um, students. And I'd say, um, but what does this mean to an African-American girl in the third, fourth grade, whenever it is you go to the state capitol? And um, I said, it, it says that this is a place that I don't have a place in. And I said, so, so these symbols have meaning to the society in ways that extend beyond simply, you know, honoring a, a, a cause or um, having relevance. I do like the idea of contextualizing them. I, I do like the idea of adding monuments to other important causes in the state. But I think we also have to be really honest about the history of when many of these monuments were established. They were not established at the end of the Civil War. They were established in the 1920s and the 1950s when the South was being um, particularly obstinate about um, digging in its heels on um, continuing some legacies that we would like to avoid at this point. And I don't say that just because I think Democrats want 
to avoid them. I think we all want to avoid them. Kevin, there are just issues that those of us who live in the South cannot seem to put to rest. Well, yeah, I'll tell you what, I've spent a lot of time on this uh, because covering this as a media organization, um, it gets complicated and you want to make sure that you're explaining things as, as, they, sh- as they should be understood and as best you can. Um, and, you know, I've spent time with Sheffield Hale. And if you really go to President the Atlanta of the Historical head Society, of the, head of the yeah. Atlanta History Center, <laughs> Center, and Thank you look you. at what they've done with the cyclorama, <laughs> And you, t- you can see how this can work because um, that that actual painting has, has it, the interpretation of that has changed through the ages. And understanding how the interpretation has changed helps you understand the mood of the country, things that were going on. And I, I agree. I don't think you can go out and just try to get rid of any, every monument. One of the stories that Sheffield tells is going to Russia and saying, he, I think he says there's only one statue of Stalin left in Russia. And you have to ask yourself, is that a good thing? Don't you want to kind of remember what that guy did so that it couldn't happen again? You know, I, I don't know what the answer to these questions are, except going back to what you open the conversation with. It's not a simple choice. It is not this or that. It's real work to to try to understand what okay, to well, do. Well, clearly think- we have to say there are some people who do think it's a simple <laughs> choice, but yeah. go ahead, Ed. Well, I've always been a great believer, and it's easier to to practice addition than it is subtraction. And in the case of a lot of these monuments, it's a whole lot easier and, quite frankly, a whole lot better uh, for for society if we add to these statues and we add to the areas uh, a historical context, such as what uh, DeKalb County is doing with the obelisk uh, on its uh, county courthouse square. And and what is being proposed for Stone Mountain. I've been a great proponent for a long while of building a monument to Martin Luther King, a bell tower on the top of uh, the Stone Mountain, uh, in order to commemorate uh, not only the, the civil rights struggle in general, but to commemorate the 1963 speech uh, on, the foot, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, in which he specifically called out Stone Mountain. Uh, so the, I've always been a greater believer in doing those sort of things to add the totality of the context as to what we're talking about. Sheffield Hale goes to church with Ed, Ed, Ed and me, and I've, he was my go-to guy last year when I introduced the local control bill originally. Uh, he's written a good deal about the benefit of contextualizing these monuments, but the most important part of that is the local conversation. I was going to say that we're not dealing with what you're most concerned about, which is Returning control to local uh, communities, municipalities, whatever. The local conversation in Decatur and DeKalb, since we're the battlefields were out Decatur, Mary Gay, uh, the Civil War historian, where the Junior League home is now, that's a local conversation. It's t- tremendously beneficial. It gave rise to Agnes Scott and in part Emory. And uh, his point about, Sheffield's point about that has been very helpful to me. And it strengthens dramatically the the need for a local control conversation. we got to get to our break, but before we do, Mary Margaret, the bills obviously passed through the Senate. Do we have any reason to think it won't pass the House? I'm afraid there's no reason to think it won't pass the House. Okay. Says the Democrat, Mary Margaret Oliver. (laughs) Thank you for that. Let's do this. Let's get to our first break, and when we come back, uh, we will will talk about the uh, where the fetal heartbeat bill stands uh, as of right now at two, almost 2.30 on a Tuesday afternoon. This is Political Rewind. Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start, and by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. Becky Sarnicki's son, Nick, struggled with addiction. He went through more rehabs than I can count, and I I could tell something wasn't right. It's true. Something was not right. I'm Elsa Chang. A Mother Jones investigation into patient brokers, insurance scams, and the shady world of rehab. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. Mary Margaret Oliver, uh, on uh, Monday morning, early on yesterday morning, the uh, 
the, the uh, Senate committee, uh, the Science and Technology Committee, of all things, uh, which is chaired by Renee Unterman, voted to pass out the fetal heartbeat bill to the full Senate. What I And we talked about that extensively on the show yesterday, but what I did not know until I looked into it this morning, it was a 3-2 vote. That committee is typically two Democrats, two Republicans, and then Renee Unterman, the Republican chair, only votes in case of a tie. I did not know until this morning that Jeff Duncan, the lieutenant governor, in preparing for that committee meeting, added an ex officio member, William Ligon, the Republican who is one of the strongest anti-abortion voices in the Senate, to assure a 3-2 vote. 3-2 vote based on party and gender lines. The two Democrat women, Jen Jordan and Victoria Say, Senator Say, were offering amendments, all of which were rejected by the committee. All of the votes were partisan. All the votes were based on gender. So, um, Kevin, we are barreling toward what appears to be a vote as perhaps, what, Friday we think it could be taken up in the Senate, uh, a vote to all but outlaw abortion in the state of Georgia. Yeah, and it will be Friday. I mean, I was down down there yesterday, and everyone thought it would be Friday. And right, no one thinks it won't ultimately pass. It has to go back to the House uh, to uh, because it was changed a little bit in the Senate. Um, the thing about it that I'm most interested in, while we have these two folks here, Bill, I'd really like to ask them to weigh in here. A lot of people who are, in particular those who are against the bill, see this this part of it that says, hey, you could claim a fetus on your tax return. And, you know, there are a couple other aspects to the bill as sort of add-ons that, you know, maybe that'll be the reason it doesn't pass or something. But when you talk to people who really care about this issue, that part of the bill is is core. It's absolutely what they're after as this state attempts to pass the most strict abortion bill in the country. Ed, you're nodding when you hear him say that. Well, yeah. Uh, it, it goes back to uh, the language in Roe v. Wade. Uh, Justice Blackmun, uh, in his decision, uh, specifically recognized that should a state uh, recognize the uh, personhood of a fetus, uh, that the uh, decision could very well change in terms of the constitutionality of, uh, of abortion restrictions. And the proponents of the bill are trying to build on that to try to create a legal argument to take the bill, to take the law up uh, and overturn Roe v. Wade. It all based on uh, their interpretation of the constitutional uh, challenges to abortion uh, in terms of establishing a personhood of a child uh, in the womb. Mary Margaret, what's it been like as a female legislator? You're more of a, you're, I don't know if I want to call you a liberal Democrat because you work across party lines pretty well, but you're a, a female Democratic legislature in a, in a body that is now hurtling toward passing the toughest abortion law in the country. Governor Kemp said he was going to pass the toughest abortion law in the country, and that is exactly what is happening. The issues of the census taker counting the fetus, uh, the tax deduction for a fetus, are the kind of unworkable kind of where did this, how could this be implemented kind of issues are all part of his commitment to make the toughest abortion law in the nation. I will tell you, it was one of the most difficult days I've ever spent on the House floor. There were a lot of people crying. There were women, uh, and there were a lot of the new freshman women who a big, strong contribution to the House floor who made enormously gifted speeches. Uh, Beth Moore's speech, uh, which was very much a faith-based the, God gave women the ability to give birth. When did the spirit of God enter the... It was an amazing speech. But many of the women spoke, the freshman women, young women. Uh, it was very dramatic. It was very, to me, um, disheartening and tragic in terms of the, the different planets we live on in the Georgia General Assembly. I, I, I want to say something real quick about this, and then and Chris, and then I know, Ed, you want to weigh in. Look, um, there are, there. I don't think there's any question that many of the people who support this measure, Chris, passionately believe that life at the very beginning of creation deserves to be protected. I mean, 
the personhood stuff is, to me, kind of an odd second issue. But when it comes down to abortion or no abortion, there's no question that there are people with profound moral feelings about this issue. Um, and so their voices do deserve to be heard. And, and I don't want that to get lost, Chris, in this conversation. Sure. And I think that you have to respect the passion and the belief system that gives those voices rise. I, I do wonder, and I'm going to go off on a tangent that is not necessarily about that passion and the um, the emotion and the feeling that Mary Margaret talked about, and say, when, when I first read this, I thought, George is going to spend millions of dollars of tax taxes, my taxes, your taxes, everyone's taxes, to defend legislation that hasn't been successful anywhere else. And um, why would Georgia want to set itself up as the state that, that charges this? How is it in our best interest as a state to do this? And the, the problem that I see with the issue is that it is very hard to find compromise or consensus on a place where you're comfortable with in the abortion debate. Um, and as a father of two daughters, um, I've become much, much more concerned with protecting um, their freedom and their right and their autonomy. Um, but yet I also respect the fact that, you know, I love my daughters. I'm glad they're here with me. So I, it's a it's a conflicting issue for many people, I and, find. And I think Chris makes a great point. There's no middle ground on no. this. There's well, no way you can find common ground. There, there, there may not be uh, uh, an apparent middle ground, but at some point we need to move beyond uh, bumper sticker uh, positions on this and start trying to trying to sort our way through a difficult time. And quite frankly, I think for a lot of us, we need to begin with the speech that my good friend and Representative Deborah Silcox made on the floor, a Republican made on the floor, in which she voted against the bill, uh, despite her own personal opposition to abortion. Um, and, you know, the fact of the matter is uh, abortion uh, lies—the issue of abortion lies at the crossroads of two fundamental principles in our society. And we need to recognize— uh, these two fundamental principles in our discussions. One is is a person's right, whether they be a man or a woman, to control what happens to their body, yep. a, a privacy right. And the second one, though, is also very important and fundamental principle in our society, and that is the importance of protecting innocent life. And, you know, and to recognize the, the importance of both of those principles, I think, is tantamount to trying to find somewhere in which we can uh, bring peace to this issue. And until uh, folks are, are prepared to accept both of these principles as fundamental to our society, we're going to continue to be at war on this issue. Kevin, since we started this discussion uh, some time ago, when, when the legislation appeared to be moving forward, uh, several panelists have said that passage of this bill, signature by the governor, will irrevocably change the political landscape in Georgia. Do you think that's true, or is that an exaggeration? I don't think it's it's too strong a statement at all. I, I think it's going to be a, a day that a lot of people look back on, no matter their, their point of view, because of what Ed just said, which is it, it, it'll force people to choose sides. A lot of people who see themselves as looking for middle ground on so many things instead potentially being forced to to change sides and then of course you know laws like this are being passed they're working their way through the courts and the ultimate goal of the people behind legislation is to get it before the supreme court and is it going to irrevocably change the landscape i don't know if it's going to irrevocably change but it does it does change the battlefield uh, significantly in the 2020 election uh we already are seeing uh republican seats uh in metro atlanta that once were considered safe seats and now be considered battleground seats and i expect uh that this particular uh bill will uh if not aggravate it will will aggravate uh the situation and and will lead to a heightened fight on both sides. Mary Margaret, I pointed out on the show yesterday when members of the committee emerged from that uh committee meeting, uh there were a lot of protesters. One of the things they were shouting at the legislators who had to be taken out with state police protection or capital police protection, they were yelling shame, but they were also yelling no safe seat, no safe seat. That's why it changes the political landscape. There are people of deep faith who make personal uh, arguments for this, and then there are politicians. And um, the, political out, the, the political reality of this vote 
the worst. He says the strongest. I say the worst in terms of just the lack of ability to implement a census taker deciding whether a woman is pregnant or not. Uh, changes the politics of 2020. There is no doubt about that. And when you put that on top of the, and the Senate is where these ideological problems are arising, in my view. Of course, I was in the Senate, so I can criticize them as much as I like. Um, the no ERA, uh, cutting back on this and that, and the state of Georgia would has the highest mortality of women giving birth in the 50 states of the United States. And we're passing bills where doctors will not be able to practice law in the area of OBGYN. Chris? He'd practice medicine. Chris, the same question to you. How does this change the landscape? Well, I don't know whether it's irrevocably, but it deepens the ravine between liberal, uh, between um, Democrats and Republicans. It makes it harder to find common ground and work across the aisle, which is really something that I think we can praise our legislators for being able to do for a very long time in this state. Um, yeah, there are plenty of things that divide them, but they have worked together on an awful lot of things that have made Georgia really, I've lived in South Carolina and Alabama, and trust me, I really like what goes on in Georgia in comparison. And um, this hurts that ability of Georgia to be, continue to be um, a small p progressive state in the South, an economically progressive place in the South, because it, it divides us on issues that are um, uh, more deeply held belief values and, and fundamental to what uh, Representative Lindsay said. I mean, they're really fundamental to how you see life. And um, I respect that, but I'm not sure that being the test case for um, a legislation which is designed to overturn Roe v. Wade and the millions of dollars that go into that, and I just mentioned the census takers and the tax returns, those aren't state issues. Those are federal issues. And so the state of Georgia is going to be challenging the federal definitions of um, individuals for the purpose of census and taxes, um, which lead to all sorts of chaos and confusion. In my long political career, we have been mostly protected from the, the tragic consequences of these kinds of votes by good leadership, Democrat and Republican, yep. more or less, until 2019 in Governor Kemp. And I am very distressed about this change in the political need of some to impose this, this tragic uh, cavern, cavernous uh, arguments on members of General Assembly. Ted, you get the last word. Well, I don't want to take away from the division that this creates, but I do want to remind folks, and, you know, I served for a decade with Mary Margaret and with others, is is I, I've seen somewhat similar type of divisions take place and then us come together on other issues where we can find common ground. And, and I do believe that the General Assembly can come back together. There's a lot of good progressive legislation, progressive in terms of, of, of business-friendly community in our state being passed this year, and I expect more to be passed next year. And so, you know, let's, let's, let's not overstate the, the division. Kevin, you want to say a word before we get to a break? I mean, I do think uh, we have to pay attention to this, you know, sort of thing in Georgia because... I mean, it's, it's, it's a thing we all deal with in personal relationships, business relationships, political relationships, and it's this. Are we going to spend our time and energy, our time and energy on the areas where we have lots of common ground and potential to make things better? Are we going to spend all our time on the most difficult things we have to deal with? And anyone who's successful with a lot of things, including marriages and relationships and parenting, knows that the most progress is made in those areas where the ground is common. All right, let's get to our uh, final break of the show, and we will be back in a minute with a lot more. This is Political Rewind. On the next Fresh Air, animal emotions and what they tell us about ourselves. We talk with Franz DeWall. He directs the Living Link Center at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center. In his new book, he writes about primate bonding, sharing, resentment, rivalry, sex, and murder, and about how he's bonded with some of the primates he studies. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org.
touchdown. John Nelson here from GPB Sports reminding you that in Georgia, the four seasons are not winter, spring, summer, and fall. It is football, spring football, Cruton, and National Signing Day. On the Football Fridays in Georgia podcast, we'll tell you the stories on and off the field. Subscribe at gpb.org forward slash sports and wherever your favorite podcasts are found. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Uh, Chris Grant is with us from our Macon Bureau. He's the head of the political science department at Mercer University. Kevin Riley, the editor of the AJC, is back with us. It's Tuesday. That's the day we look forward to having him here. Uh, Ed Lindsay, former state rep from the city of Atlanta, is with us. He served as a Republican in the legislature. And Mary Margaret Oliver, uh, Decatur state rep, a Democratic uh, state rep, is with us. Before we get on to our next uh, couple of subjects, let me remind you, Monday night, April 8th, this whole crew is heading down to Athens, heading over to Athens, Georgia. We're going to do a show in front of a live audience out there. Jim Galloway, Greg Bluestein, uh, UGA political science professor Audrey Haynes, a frequent panelist on the show, are all going to be with me out there. We've got a couple of other panelists we're uh, preparing to bring in for the show. We'd love to have you with us if you are out there anywhere near the Athens area. It's very easy to reserve a spot. Just go to uh, politicalrewind.org. You'll find a link there that will allow you to register. It's free. But we want you to sign up so that we know that we have a seat for you when you get there. So please come on out to Athens and uh, watch the show, ask questions, and uh, then you'll be able to listen, turn on your radios or go to Facebook Live on Tuesday and see the show on the air that you've all watched being recorded on Monday night. So we hope we see you out there uh, in Athens on Monday, April 8th. Um, I want to dismiss one thing pretty quickly, and I think we can do this. There's been a lot of time and attention, Mary Margaret, about the state's attempted takeover of Hartsfield-Jackson Airport. The speaker, David Ralston, has said from the start, I don't see the reason. So it's still alive. The House still can take it up. But do we have any reason to think this bill deserves a whole lot more attention, or is it just going to die because the speaker and some others don't think it makes much sense? I don't think it has any life this session and the remaining seven days or six days, however many we have. But, it, you know, we're in a two-year term. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> life goes on. If, if I could add one thing, though, while I, I don't think it'll pass this year, I do think it's a stick that hopefully the city of Atlanta can take up and go, OK, we disagree fundamentally with an attempt by the state to take over our, this airport. But we do recognize that there are operational problems with uh, the airport, and we will take the, the, the steps necessary to correct those. I think that's a terrific point. Right. We still got another year left in this uh, biennial session. And so, Kevin... It does give the city incentive, and Mayor Bottoms, if she, and she does take this seriously, says, we'd better get everything in order so that next session they don't have any reason to come back and push this again. Right. I mean, what I would say is until a, uh, a stake is dri- driven through the bill's heart, yeah. no one should assume. <laughs> oh, it's that, never that, over yeah, now. Right. It's never over. You're, you're, thank you very much and for reminding us Even if you want to argue that, that this, if you, you can, as Ed points out, the city's uh, problems with management and accusations of corruption are troubling— of course, I don't know that if you were going to solve a problem like that, you'd immediately turn to the state of Georgia as a place to handle, that handles that sort of thing better. All right. Uh, okay, so we'll see how that develops in the days ahead. Uh, Gwinnett County's voting. Finally, this is Election Day on the martyr referendum in Gwinnett. One of these we haven't pointed out uh, since we began this conversation weeks ago is what people in their early voting and today when they go out to the polls to vote are seeing is a really inter- is really interesting language. I don't have the actual language in front of me, Kevin, but essentially what they're being uh, what the ballot says is Gwinnett County has entered into a contract for public transportation services. Do you approve or disapprove? It doesn't say Marta. It doesn't say one uh, cent t- sales tax in perpetuity. It just says, do you like the idea or not? And we really don't know. Uh, despite the fact that a great many Republican leaders in Gwinnett have gotten behind it, whether this thing is going to pass. 
Well, we have run the language that people will be voting on virtually every day for a month, just to make sure people are are not surprised when they go and they see it on yeah. the ballot. But if if this uh, measure does not pass, I think that uh, people will probably say when the decision was made to hold a special election on March 19th on this issue, that might have been when its fate was sealed. And who is responsible for that? I think you know the answer to that question. <laughs> it was the Republicans who did not want this to be on the November ballot, where they th where, which is kind of odd because now you have so many Republicans in the county lining up behind this referendum, Mary Margaret. Or I, I think it, it was amazingly anti-business and anti-regional growth and anti-good management that uh, the Republican leadership and one or two people decided to try to protect some Republican legislators in Gwinnett County by moving the date, giving the bill less of a chance. And that, of course, didn't help the legislators that all got beat. And now we're in a situation where Gwinnett County may hurt itself significantly in terms of the future. Well, first off, I think it's it's important that it be a, a standalone issue uh, for the reasons that, that Kevin sort of talked about earlier in terms of the language so that the folks who do show up will know exactly what they're voting for. And I want to take a moment to, to say something that I didn't think I would ever say ever. I agree with Eric Erickson and <laughs> Stacey Abrams on this one, <laughs> who both are uh, in favor of this referendum. How many times can I ever have a chance to say those two names together? Uh, probably never. But the fact of the matter is, if it doesn't pass this time, it's going to pass relatively soon. And once Gwinnett uh, passes it, I do believe sometime in the near future thereafter, we'll start seeing other counties like Cobb, or at least part of Cobb, come on board as well, yeah. which we need to in I, order I to, sure to have right. the future yeah. I sure uh, hope you're right. that we need. Uh, Chris, uh, Ed makes a good point. People in Cobb County are going to watch this very closely because they've got to figure this out. But but it also has impact in other parts of the state. Down there in Macon, I'm sure your leadership is looking to see what they think the appetite for transit might be as you look for different ways to find alternate transportation, whether it's within the Macon, you know, the general sure. region or or with a, a service to Atlanta, whatever. It well, you know we're waiting on the train. Exactly. We're waiting on the train. Yeah. I've been waiting on it for now, I think, 30 years. I'm waiting <laughs> on it. It's going to come one day. Um, no, no, I, I actually have a, a little story. I was coming back from Europe um, this last Sunday. I had been doing some research in Eastern Europe, and I was sitting next to a Polish fellow on the plane who had Saturday to spend in Atlanta and get around. And he said, well, is there public transportation? And I said, there is. Um, it doesn't go everywhere, but it does go places. It was particularly speaking of the trains. Um, and he was interested in what to see. And so he was going to the Coca-Cola Center, and I said, oh, yeah, that's great. Um, and I mentioned the King Memorial sites and talking about that. And as the plane was coming toward the Atlanta airport, which is still under city control, we, um, we saw this big white mountain out there. And we started talking about Stone Mountain and a little bit about history and the state and um, how much the state has changed from when I was growing up in the 70s um, in Alabama and looking to Georgia with great um, wonderment and um, how much progress the state really has made. Um, and so I hope that the transit's going to work. I mean, down here, we've had a real problem with transit locally. Um, when we had budget shortfalls in Bibb County, there was a motion to cut all of our public transport. And for people that don't have vehicles, and that's a lot of people that work and do some pretty important jobs in our community, um, that's a real problem. All right, we're going to watch. There's the, the early voting, yep. Mary Margaret, is not not promising. It's older white guys, <laughs> and and we don't yeah. imagine that they have been, been voting in favor of no transit. No offense to the gathering here, but that is not the current. Some older white guys <laughs> actually support uh, mass transit. Well, I will, look, as an older white guy, I will say that I grew up in Chicago. I grew up uh, riding the L and the 151 bus along Lakeshore Drive, and I miss transit here enormously. Mm -hmm. You know what I think part of what the issue is going to be up against is, is something as simple as this. You know, most average people have very little control over how they're taxed. I mean, that's just the reality they live with. 
you couple that with people who've been doing their income tax returns, maybe finding out <laughs> that their refund isn't what they're used to, or maybe they what they were expecting. Yeah, or 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 you know, with with the tax reform, and there is one thing they can do if they live in Gwinnett County about you know to express their point of view, which is potentially vote against this. And I just think that, you know, your average person who feels so overwhelmed by all of this and has, might not feel like they have much control of their life will and be the, tempted. And the average person is not going to be drilling down into the deal that Gwinnett cut with MARTA. I mean, it's just amazingly generous by DeKalb County standards. Ms. Yeah. Uh, Minash yeah, did a yeah, great job. Yeah, Mike Thurman was on, of course, the, C- well, the CEO of DeKalb County the other day, saying, I wish I could have gotten the exactly. deal Gwinnett's getting. Well, the fact of <laughs> that, I want folks to remember that the, the first time MARTA got put on a ballot, it went down in the 1970s, right. and it took two times to get it passed, even in Fulton and DeKalb. And like I said, it's, if, if it doesn't pass today, my expectation is sometime within the next two years, Gwinnett's going to come on board. All right. Um, we're running short of time. I want to mention one quick thing, which we're going to talk about a lot more in a lot more depth on Friday. Today's the 40th anniversary of the start of C-SPAN. Uh, it's hard to remember, if you're uh, old enough to remember this, that, you know, for, for many, many decades, for centuries— uh, the United States Congress, there was no way to observe them in action unless you went uh, there uh, or read newspaper accounts. And from the days of radio on, there was no live coverage. And then C-SPAN came along in 1979 on March 19th and began its first broadcasts of live action in the House and Senate. And, Ed, what's fascinating about that is no one took more advantage of those live C-SPAN cameras than Newt Gingrich. Gingrich. (laughs) He made his career by becoming a star on C-SPAN in the early days. Well, the analogy that I draw is that before C-SPAN, when congressmen or senators went to Washington, they entered into the Potomac fog, and C-SPAN was the first uh, sunlight that pierced through that fog and started giving people a glimpse as to what goes on in Washington directly. But but it's interesting now how— how archaic it now seems compared to yeah. other Twitter. means of social media Twitter. that our elected officials now use in order to communicate back to their residents uh, back home. I remember back in the early days, Chris, I, and we're really running out of time, Brian Lamb was the founder of C-SPAN. Many people remember him as an on-air host at C-SPAN for many years. And uh, my offices in Washington were in the same building, 400 North Capitol as C-SPAN. And Brian was one of the most enthusiastic broadcasters you could imagine. He was so excited that he had created and gotten cable systems across the country to buy into his vision. It was really thrilling to know Brian back in those days. I, I think C-SPAN has provided such an, an asset to the country, both in their just live-based coverage of Congress, but also in the programming they've done, which really has been in the public interest. And, uh, and it, even though it's created from a consortium of for-profit companies, it's an example of when you can give back to the society. And yeah. um, right. really amazing stuff when you think about it, the Lincoln series or the presidential debates and so many things that they've done over the years. All right. I've got a Call a halt to the conversation because we're running out of time. Uh, it was Chris Grant down in Macon. Thank you for joining us. Kevin Riley, see you again next Tuesday. Ed Lindsay, Mary Margaret Oliver, Mary Margaret, looking forward to seeing what you do down at the Capitol. And Ed Lindsay, maybe we'll hear something more from you later this afternoon. We'll see how that goes. Uh, hey, no tomorrow, Johnny Isaacson, U.S. Senator Johnny Isaacson is going to be here to talk what life is like in Washington these days when the toxicity of partisan politics is out of control. How does he manage to maneuver through that toxicity? Johnny will be here tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Hope you will be, too. Take care.